Last evening we come to this book of Zechariah. It is the eleventh book of the minor prophets, the twelve minor prophets, and the second of the three books which constitute the last words of God under the old covenant. That is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. In many ways, Zechariah is interwoven with the book of Haggai. And this, after all, we would expect, since they were fellow workers with the same burden and vision at the same time in history. Both of them had a vital part to play in a particular phase of the outworking of God's purpose. And they very wonderfully balanced each other in this work of ministry. Zechariah's ministry begins not only in the same year as Haggai's, that is the second year of Darius the first, 520 uh, B.C., um, but uh, Zechariah's ministry began not only in the, the same time uh, as Haggai, uh, as Haggai's, but also he began with the same deep concern for the rebuilding of the temple. They shared this consuming burden and concern for the rebuilding of the house of God. And it is very interesting that these two men, in some ways quite different, are linked together and both of them start ministering at the same time within, an, in fact, a matter of months, one or the other, and have the same common uh, burden and concern. Nevertheless, Zechariah moves far beyond, far, far, far beyond the limited and particular emphasis of Haggai's ministry. Haggai, of course, what we have recorded of him is kept not because necessarily he wanted to, but because the Holy Spirit held him to it, to one particular line from which he never departed. Zechariah begins on exactly the same line, but he somehow soars away and beyond Haggai and opens up for us a panorama that Haggai never gave us even really a glimpse of. Perhaps now and again you might have got just a slight glimmer when he speaks of all those the silver and the gold coming and the glory filling uh, the latter house and exceeding that of the former. But Zechariah takes us right away and beyond anything that Haggai has said. He goes far beyond it altogether. All it is as if at first the Lord focused everything down to the one matter of building. As if he, the Lord himself, would not and refused 
to go beyond this one matter of rebuilding until the people were obedient and began to get on with the actual job of construction. As soon as the people are obedient and start the work of building stone upon stone, then it's as if the Lord suddenly opens his heart in a way that he refused to do through Haggai and begins to show to the people just what is involved in their building. It's, it's so wonderful. Once one, we could all grasp this, it, it is helpful. You see, it's as if the Lord holds back everything under a veil of secrecy. As if all he says is build, build, build. You, your, your, your harvests are blighted. There's drought on the heavens. Everything's going wrong until you build. Build. Consider your ways. Go up into the hill country. Bring wood and build the house of the Lord your God. And I will take pleasure in it and will be glorified. He has only one note in his ministry and it is build. Just that one note, built. But once the people not only go out in obedience and get the material and clear the site, once they actually not only get that far but go beyond it and start to build the actual house of the Lord, it is suddenly as if then the Lord begins to reveal to them the far-reaching fullness of his purpose. As if he now begins to unveil something of what their obedience is leading them into. It is most instructive and helpful to recognize this one simple fact that if the people had never been obedient on that one note of building, then Zechariah's ministry would probably have not been of this it was because the people were obedient and started to get on with the job that the Lord begins to unveil for them something of its fuller meaning. Well, we shall look at that a little later. Luther called this book the quintessence of the prophets. He, for him, it was the purest embodiment of all the teaching contained in the, in, the, in the previous uh, uh, preceding problem. And it is true that Zechariah sums up for us the main theme of all the former prophetic books. He focuses our attention upon Christ. In fact, except, except for Isaiah, Zechariah is the most Christ-centered prophetic book. There are none of the other prophetic books that come so near to being filled on almost every page with prophecies of the coming Messiah and predictions of exactly how he was going to come, of how he was going to be rejected, of how he was going to suffer, of how finally he would be exalted, and how finally his kingdom would be brought in in glory. 
In fact, it is true to say that we have the most marvelously clear and distinct prophecy concerning Christ and his church anywhere in the prophetic books except in the book of Isaiah. It is therefore very, very interesting to note this one point that the New Testament writers quote Zechariah more than any other book except Isaiah. Just because um, Zechariah um, predicts Christ so clearly, you find again and again in the Gospels and elsewhere that, uh, that Zechariah is quoted as being fulfilled in this point and that point and the other point. You remember when the Lord came riding on a colt of an ass? Thy king coming lowly. That's Zechariah. You know the 30 pieces of silver that, that, were, that were given to Judas to, for his betrayal of Christ? That was Zechariah. You know when the Lord spoke of the shepherd being smitten and the sheep being scattered? That was Zechariah. You know where it says that he was pierced so that it might be fulfilled what was said? They pierced him. They shall look upon him whom they pierced. That was Zechariah. So you can go on and go on and go on. Zechariah foretold the coming of Christ. But he did more than foretell the coming of Christ. He foretold not only the work of Christ through his suffering and through his death, but he foretold the, the sprouting out of him, this word the branch, this, the sprouting out of Christ of the church. This marvelous conception of, of a Messiah coming, a, a, a Messiah coming who would be rejected, who would suffer for the people, and who would finally redeem them, and then from within him, out of him, should come another people, the people of God, the redeemed of the Lord. The church should sprout out, out of him. And this one who's called the sprout, it doesn't sound a very reverent term. We, we rather prefer the authorised version, the branch. But actually, the Hebrew is sprout, the sprout, the bud. This one who will bud, this one who will sprout, this, this one who will shoot up into full blossom and leaf and fruit, this one, as we've read this evening, will build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory. And there are so many other prophecies that at present we can't look at them. We are only introducing this book of Zechariah. But you see, here we get this amazing prediction that the Messiah would be both king and priest. That within himself, he would on the one hand embody all that God ever thought of kingship. And on the other hand, he would embody all that God ever thought of in priesthood. These two things kept distinctly separate in the Old Testament would be united in the person of Christ, the Messiah. So you understand how it is that the New Testament quotes this book more than any other except the book of Isaiah. Now what can we say about the um, style of the book? Daniel and Ezekiel were the beginners of what we call apocalyptic literature. That is, the revelation of the future 
by figure and symbol. Now, Daniel was the first, actually, to um, uh, begin, in a big way, to use this method. And he was followed by Ezekiel, who also uh, used this method very, very much in his ministry. Now, Zechariah is their worthy successor. He, by this means, um, reveals to us the future in visions of symbols, in symbolic acts that he enacted, uh, and so on and so forth. It became later, this apocalyptic style, uh, it became later the most common uh, and predominant style during the silent years between Malachi and John the Baptist. In fact, so much so that there, is, there was an absolute abundance of material, of apocalyptic material produced in those centuries. Most of it very third-rate indeed, very, very poor quality and character. The best works are preserved for us in what we call the Apocrypha. So if any of you want to go away and look it up, outside of what we call canonicals, uh, writings, then you will see in the book of the Apocrypha you will find the better apocalyptic literature preserved. Um, in this book we find the whole range of, poeti uh, of prophetic method used. Symbolism in vision and in act, prophetic poetry, conversational prose, and direct announcement. That's the, the oldest, most ancient form of prophecy. Direct Thus saith the Lord. Direct announcement. But all these different methods of prophecy we find in this little book of 14 chapters. Zechariah's prose resembles, as in fact we would expect, resembles Ezekiel's very much indeed. His poetic form lacks rhythm and it lacks symmetry, which was the principal beauty of Hebrew poetry. Nevertheless, Zechariah has a most graphic and vivid style. You've only got to read through the book and uh, read it perhaps in the American Revised Standard Version uh, and you will begin to see just how graphic and vivid Zechariah's style was. It must have gripped the people. Uh, of his day. Somehow or other might be strange and mysterious, and yet it was also startling, startlingly clear. He got over what he was trying to say to the people. Through it, the Lord really um, was defining something, predicting something. Uh, he has the most energetic directness uh, and, um, and clarity. And there are parts of the book which reach the heights of, of, of beauty uh, in prophecy. They are as sublime as anything else in the other prophetic books. We must also say this, I've already said it a little earlier this evening, that this book presents us with some of the thorniest problems in the Bible, and has been the cause for much discussion 
and controversy. Now, what can we say about the authorship and debt? Here we start straight away in one of the thorny problems. There's been tremendous discussion and controversy over the authorship and dating of this book. Largely because of the very real dissimilarities between the first eight chapters and the last six chapters. Now, you, you will see, if you take your, the book of Zechariah, that it falls into two uh, clear sections. From Zechariah 1, verse 1, right through to Zechariah 8, verse 23, there is one clear, unfolding, progressive revelation. And then from chapter 9, verse 1, right through to 14, verse um, 21, we have another section. These uh, two sections, of course, are subdivided, but there are two main, clear uh, sections to this book of Zechariah. And the problem is that they are so dissimilar. Now, this um, problem is not so strange to Scripture because, in fact, we have already faced it in the book of Isaiah, where we have the same kind of problem. Two sections, Isaiah 1 to 35, and then Isaiah 40 to 66, which uh, some have felt to be so different um, that they must, of necessity, had, have had two different authors living at quite different times. However, I, I think, as you, if you will cast your minds back to the studies we took in Isaiah, that there is an awful lot to be said for the unity of the book of Isaiah. Now, whether that can be said for the book of Zechariah, we shall, you must wait uh, to see. Whilst all agree that the book falls into these two distinct parts, and most scholars, with a few exceptions, would agree to Zechariah's authorship of Zechariah 1 to 8, there are very divergent views over the last six chapters, from 9 to 14. Throughout the first eight chapters... Zechariah is named as the author. And he is not only named as the author, but the portions are clearly dated. Now, if you will look very, very swiftly, Zechariah 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying. Clear. Right? Same chapter, verse 7. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying. Then, if you turn over to um, chapter 7, verse 1, came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislet. Then in verse 8 of the same chapter, the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying. If you look back to Ezra chapter 5, Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, 
you read this. Now the prophet Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah. Chapter 6, verse 14. The elders of the Jews builded and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. So there it is clearly stated uh, that Zechariah is Haggai's fellow worker. And there seems little reason to doubt this. For three reasons. Firstly, all in the chapters 1 to 8, all the material there is wholly in accord with what we know of the historical period. It's wholly in accord with what we know, for instance, of the reign of Darius I, of what we know of his administration in the Persian Empire of what we know about generally what was happening in the, in the world at that time. The atmosphere completely accords with what we know of that historical period generally. Secondly, it agrees in detail, not only in the way it is dated, but in the general atmosphere and detail of the book of Haggai. In other words, as we would expect, these two being fellow workers, their two books, their two ministries, or the first eight chapters of Zechariah and the book of Haggai, seem to interlock. They correspond. They don't contradict each other in any way. They support one another. Thirdly, it also agrees with the other contemporary history we have in the book of Ezra, chapter 5 and chapter 6. So altogether there is no real reason for doubting the authorship of Zechariah of the first eight chapters of this book. It's clearly dated, uh, we're given his name, and there's all this other evidence to support that fact. And as I say, scholars of nearly every school of thought accept the authorship, with just a very few, few exceptions, accept the authorship of Zechariah for the first eight chapters of the book. The reasons for the great divergence of view in scholars from every school of thought over Zechariah 9 to 14 are as follows. Firstly, the style of chapters 9 to 14 are quite different, quite different from chapters 1 to 8. Secondly, Zechariah is not mentioned once in the whole of the last six chapters of this book, nor is it dated at any single point. Thirdly, the general situation and atmosphere is not that of Zechariah's time, so they say. Zechariah 1 to 8 is full of promise and hope. It is full of good leadership, the encouragement of good leadership, both in the high priest and in the governor. It is full of the temple and um, the rebuilding of the temple and the services of the temple and so on and so forth. On the other hand, Zechariah 9 to 14 is filled with the definition of bad leadership. It is filled with the thought of impending trouble and gloom. There is no mention of the temple, of the rebuilding of it, of anything in that sense to do with it. Fourthly, and this is a rather remarkable fact, the title 
the Lord of hosts, used so much in the little book of Haggai, and again in this book of Zechariah, is used 48 times in the first eight chapters, and only eight times in the last six chapters. Then again, and this is one of our biggest problems, in Matthew 27, if you'd like to turn to it, verse 9 and 10, Zechariah 11, verse 13, is clearly said to be the work, not of Zechariah, but of Jeremiah. Matthew 27, verse 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was priced, whom certain of the children of Israel did price, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed them. If you look in your margin, uh, you will see this is a... Uh, fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 11, 12 and 13 and here it is attributed to Jeremiah. If you look back to Zechariah uh, 11 verse 13 you will find here and the Lord said unto me cast it unto the pot of the goodly price that I was prized at by them I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them unto the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, these are the reasons why there's such great, great divergence of view concerning the authorship of the last six chapters of Zechariah. Not only do there seem to be much indication within the chapters themselves that they don't belong uh, to the hand of Zechariah, but Scripture itself seems to suggest that uh, they were not. In fact, it says clearly that this particular portion was uh, the work of Jeremiah, the prophet. The controversy over these chapters goes back as far as the 17th century. If I'm right, it goes back to actually the year 1653 when a certain brother called Joseph Mead raised the question and caused a storm. Uh, the main views advanced now are, one, the whole book is in fact a unity and the author is Zechariah. Now, Professor Ellison, who is uh, one of our sanest biblical and Hebrew scholars, says that this view is entirely tenable, but it does not explain the facts. Secondly, their second view is that chapters 9 to 14 are a unity written by either a very early or a very late unknown prophet. Some have suggested Jeremiah. That would be a very early uh, prophet. Most modern scholarship, however, leans to a date later than Zechariah. The third view is that chapters 9 to 14 are a collection of anonymous uh, prophetic fragments of which one might well have been by Jeremiah. Probably, however, uh, though some may be early, probably all of them were later than Zechariah. Fourthly, and this is the most interesting um, theory, I'm not going to go into it this evening, I'll just explain it to you and leave it to you. It is, in fact, the most interesting theory. There are here three anonymous prophetic discourses added fittingly 
at the end of the 12 minor prophets, at the end of the minor prophets, to make up the 12. Because 12 was a spiritual figure that meant a lot to the Jews and is in fact a biblical, has biblical meaning. Um, these three prophetic discourses, which were anonymous, were placed at the end of the known uh, minor prophets. And this is the interesting point. Each begins with a phrase unique in the prophetic books. If you'd like to turn with me to it, you'll find it. Um, Zechariah 9, 1. <clears throat> the burden of the word of the Lord. Then, chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord. And then Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord. Now, I'm going to leave Malachi till we come to it. But, of course, you probably all know that there's great controversy over whether this name Malachi was the name of an actual person or whether it is what it means in Hebrew, my messenger. Yeah. The burden of the word of the Lord whispered by my messenger, who was anonymous. So there is this third um, suggestion uh, which is made that we have here three prophetic, anonymous prophetic discourses, each introduced by this phrase unique in the prophetic books, the burden of the word of the Lord. Zechariah 9 to 11. Zechariah 12 to 14, and Malachi 1 to 3. Now, it's suggested that the first is pre-exilic. Now, that could be then possibly Jeremiah. The second is post-exilic, and the third, it cannot be dated later, and the book we know as Malachi, cannot be dated later than uh, 450 B.C. <coughs> There are, however, those who would not place any of the three before 330 BC, that's the advent of Alexander the Great, simply because there happens to be a, the word Greece used in one of the chapters. We'll mention that in a moment. And, of course, other things. The Psalter and Pro Book of Proverbs are pointed to as illustrations of anonymous works and even other named works that are joined to definitely well-known names. For instance, the Psalms of David. And then you have a whole lot of anonymous Psalms grouped under the Psalms of David. Then in the Proverbs, you have the Proverbs of Solomon, and you have a man called Lemuel and Agur and others, um, anonymous Proverbs, some of them, brought in also with the um, uh, Proverbs of Solomon. The, the, these two works, the Psalter and the Proverbs, Book of Proverbs, are therefore given as evidence that this is not unknown in Scripture. Now, <clears throat> the main arguments for the unity of the whole book are, uh, as one work by Zechariah are, again, as follows. The first is this, the presentation of the Messiah in both sections is essentially the same. 
Secondly, the mention of Greece in chapter 9, verse 13. Uh, last part of the birth. I will stir up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and will make thee as the sword of a mighty man. The mention of Greece does not necessarily mean a date later than 330 BC when Alexander the Great defeated the Persians and the Greek Empire uh, took the place of the Persians. Because already in Zechariah's time, Greece, the power of Greece was rising. And, uh, there is also another point just to confuse everyone, uh, in uh, chapter 10, verse 10, uh, it says, And gather them out of Assyria. <clears throat> Assyria had vanished some centuries before Zechariah. And also in um, chapter 9, verse 5, it says in the last part, And the kings shall perish from Gaza. The kings of Gaza long since ceased to be uh, <clears throat> when Zechariah was there. So if we're going to argue that Greece means that we must take a later date in 330 BC, we have something to counter it. We have the mention of the kings of Gaza and of, of the nation of Assyria, the, the, empire, the Assyrian Empire, which seem, as it were, to counter both. One, you could say, is an early date, and would argue even for Jeremiah's time. The other, you see, we could um, uh, say, argues for a later date. Here, then, are some of our problems. Thirdly, on the question of style, there are certain peculiar expressions which occur in both chapters 1 to 8 and chapters 9 to 14, uh, which occur nowhere else in the Old Testament. Uh, one of them uh, is in chapter 7, verse 14. Now, in your authorised version, the phrase is, from passing through and returning. In my American Standard Version, it is this. Um, no man passed through nor returned. Now, this is a distinct Hebrew phrase. It occurs nowhere else in the whole of Scripture. You have that one um, use of it here in this section, 1 to 8. Then if you turn over to um, chapter 9, verse 8, you have it again that none pass through or return. So some again would argue here is evidence of a unity uh, of style. Um, then again, the language of both sections is free, strangely and remarkably free, from Aramaism. The difference in style, fourthly it is argued, could be accounted for by the change of subject matter from the building program of the present in which the Messiah is predicted and seen to the far future when the Messiah would come and actually perform his work. Um, it is suggested that because of the obvious difference of speaking directly to the present uh, in the first eight chapters, and then, as it were, just lifting up one's eyes altogether away from the present and looking far off into the future, you do obviously get a difference of phraseology, a difference of style. 
Um, <clears throat> this again is one of the arguments put forward for the unity of the book. And then another argument is this. <clears throat> Much could also be explained by Zechariah's age. <clears throat> if he was 20 in 520 BC, you'll have to correct my arithmetic if I'm wrong, then he would have been 62 in 458 and 75 in 445. In other words, if he was the young man we believe he was in 520, he could well have lived right the way through and seen the three returns. He would have been four when he was brought back with them from Babylon. He would have been um, 62 at the second return under Ezra and the restoration of the law, and he would have been 75 when the walls of Jerusalem were finally rebuilt and the, the recovery, reconstruction of Reformation were finally concluded. Now, if this is so, it is probable that the first eight chapters belong to his youth. Between the years 520 and 518, in other words, between the years when he was aged between 20 and 22, whereas the last chapters from uh, 9 to 14 may well belong to this period round here when he was in his 70s. Again, this could explain some of the difference in style. The same argument, of course, is used in, in the book of Isaiah, where we know that he was a young man in the first, when, when he ministered the first uh, um, chapter prophecies that we have in the first 35 chapters, and we know he was an old man when he finally gave what we have in those last chapters. And it is quite clear that a man's style does mature and develop and, in fact, changes often uh, in the course of the years. There is an essential unity but there can be a very real uh, difference that takes place. Again, it is suggested then that he wrote chapters 9 to 14 in his old age. Of course, we know that uh, Zechariah 1 to 8 was written in his youth. And then again, another argument for the unity of this book is the mention of Jeremiah in Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10, must either be a copyist's error, this is always a marvellous get-out uh, on these things, or a reference to another prophecy by Jeremiah not now known. The quotation is certainly not an exact one, because if you compare uh, Matthew 27, 9 and 10, with Zechariah 11, 13, you will find it's not an exact uh, uh, quotation, and furthermore, nor, is it, nor can it be explained by the Septuagint version, from which it differs even more. So here, the, uh, those who argue for the unity of Zechariah say, um, uh, maybe this was a prophecy by Jeremiah, which is not now extant at all. Others say, you know, the copyists were sometimes a little lethargic and lazy. And it is true, especially when they came to figures and names, uh, they tended to dream, I don't know whether it was the heat of the day and the type of atmosphere they lived in, uh, and sometimes uh, wrote uh, down uh, the names they were dreaming about. 
Of course, it is true that Jeremiah does speak about a field, the potter's field. And someone has suggested that some dreamy copyist uh, um, was thinking about the potter's field instead of putting Zechariah, put Jeremiah. However, I do feel that he needs an awful lot of sort of engineering uh, to sort of get round this problem, which is there. That's the point. The problem is there. We are told that this was... Uh, prophecy by Jeremiah and if we do believe in the unity of this whole book uh, then we have a problem and we have to face it we do no justice by trying to evade it in summarizing we have to say that it is not possible to prove the unity of this book without leaving some problems unanswered on the other hand by abandoning it, we also have to leave ourselves with other problems unanswered. So we are on the horns of a dilemma. What we can say is this. The main part of this book, from Zechariah 1 to 8, undoubtedly belongs to the hand of Zechariah and can be dated between the years 520 and 518 B.C., in the reign of Darius I of Persia. If the latter portion of the book, Zechariah 9 to 14, belongs to him, then the whole book, as we now have it, can be dated approximately 445 B.C. Even if Zechariah 9 to 14 does not belong to Zechariah, the book as we now have it probably still dates from approximately 450 BC. Now, after all that, and I'm glad we're through it, it's very interesting to note this that in Zechariah 1 to 8, where, where it is helpful to know something about the author and his background, therefore it's helpful to know the date, we are given clear information as to who is the author and when he ministered. And where the teaching is uninfluenced by such knowledge, we are not given any information as to the author or the date. Now, isn't that marvelous? When for our um, instruction, it is important for us to know just what phase they were, what was happening to the temple, why they were despondent, what the battle was, and all the rest of it, what the general background is, we're given the whole thing. But when he lifts up his eyes over centuries and sees in the far distant future, 400 years ahead, the coming of Christ. And we don't need to have to know anything about his background. We don't have to know anything about the date at which it was given. We don't have to even know who is the author. We're not told. To me, that's wonderful. So here you are this evening, you've got problems. And uh, as I've often said to you, though we believe in the absolute authority and inspiration of Scripture, we also believe in problems. Uh, so you've got some problems. I keep you humble. On the other hand, this is the wonderful thing. 
Here is the wisdom of God, where mm, such problems would unnerve us altogether and would be most unhelpful, um, uh, that we don't have them. But where it is obvious uh, that we, uh, it doesn't matter so much, well, we just, we don't have to worry so much. And there's another point we ought to emphasise too, and um, just in fact, there's any, in, in case there's anyone who's a bit worried about what we've said about this, the unity of this book, um, whatever we may feel about the authorship of the last portion of this book of Zechariah, there is a spiritual unity of themes clearly apparent throughout the 14 chapters. Now, it is interesting, a man like Ellison, Professor Ellison, who believes that the last uh, six chapters were not the work of Zechariah, but um, believes in the three anonymous discourses uh, theory, nevertheless believes that they were put there because there was a spiritual link. So whatever uh, we may feel, the whole point is this. We have in these last two discourses, 9 to uh, 11 and 12 to 14, a spiritual theme, which even if it's not the work of Zechariah, was the reason why it was placed next to the first eight chapters. Well, there we are. We leave these problems of authorship and date behind us now. Um, we've faced the problem squarely. Uh, we've given you all the information that uh, we've been able to, to the extent of our ability in the Lord. Uh, we can say this, that we are, we are clear as to who wrote the first eight chapters. We do know when we can date those. Uh, it may well be that the whole book belongs to Zechariah. On the other hand, it may not, may not in fact, be his work, the last six chapters, and in any way, in, at any rate, it's not in uh, denying the question of the authority and inspiration of God's word, for God's word itself seems to suggest that there might be another author. So we leave that. Now what can we say about the background of Zechariah? There are some 28 people in the Bible with the name Zechariah or Zacharias. <coughs> it means the Lord remembers. That's a rather lovely name. The one the Lord remembers or the Lord remembers. We are told in Zechariah 1.1 and uh, 1.7 that Zechariah's father was Berechiah and his grandfather was called Edo. In Ezra 5 and ch uh, chapter 5 verse 1 and chapter 6 verse 14 Zechariah is called merely the son of Edo. This is not an inconsistency, since in the scriptures the use of this phrase, the son of, has a very broad meaning. It can mean the descendant of. For instance, you can speak of someone long after David as the son of David, See? really meaning the, the descendant of David. And it was one of the, um, the Jews have always been particularly careful about pedigree. And especially if you had a notable ancestor, uh, you immediately became the son of. 
so and so. It's quite an ancient method and particularly a Jewish method. So this is not inconsistent that in, in uh, the book of um, Ezra he is called the son of Ido, when in fact he was the grandson of Ido. Um, then again, uh, we might say it's possible, um, in fact, in this particular case, that Zechariah's father died when he was a young lad. And um, his grandfather, Ido, uh, brought him up. Now, we infer this from Nehemiah's register, and this is very interesting, Nehemiah's register of priests and Levites who returned in 536 under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. If you turn to that register, Nehemiah 12, <coughs> Nehemiah 12, Uh, verse 1. Now these are the priests and the Levites that went up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, or Joshua. Then it goes through a list. Then uh, chapter 12, verse 16. Of Edo, Zechariah. Now, this is very interesting. Because it is clear that Edo is referred to as the head of one of the twelve courses of the priests. You know, the priests were divided up into twelve courses for the work, the, the routine work of the temple. And Edo, the grandfather of Zechariah, if it is the same man, I should think it almost certainly is, uh, um, then his grandfather was the head of one of the twelve courses of priests. Now, this means that Zechariah, this is mostly helpful later, and I'm afraid not this evening, but later other evenings, um, it, it, it's helpful because it means this, that Zechariah was not only a prophet but a priest. And in fact, later on, he became a head of one of the twelve courses. It says so in this uh, very verse, um, uh, chapter 12, verse 16, of the course of Edo, Zechariah. Um, now, this means that like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk, um, Zechariah combined in himself the office of both prophet and priest. And it would seem that when his grandfather died, he became the head of that house, that course. Then again, if Zechariah's grandfather returned in 536 BC with his family, it is not wrong to infer that Zechariah was very young when he began to minister. Now look at Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 4. Now, of course, it is true that this is open to different interpretations. But you will see there were two angels here. One angel said to the other, and of course Zechariah, two angels and Zechariah himself. And one of the angels said to the other angel, Run, speak to this young man, say. The same word is used of Jeremiah when he says he's too young uh, to, uh, to speak, um, and so on. You remember in the first chapter of Jeremiah. 
From this, uh, we infer that it may well be that uh, Zechariah was a youth. He was literally in his teens. And I've mentioned the age 20 to be on the sort of broad side, but in fact he may have been quite much younger than that. He may have been only 16 or so. Uh, he began his ministry two months after Haggai began him. Again, you've got to look at the dates. Zechariah 1, verse 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, and compare that with Haggai 1, verse 1, in the sixth month of the second year of Darius. Uh, the immediate objective of his ministry, as of Haggai's, as we have already mentioned, was the rebuilding and completion of the house. So we can say that Zechariah's background is the same, generally speaking, as Haggai's. Persia was the world power, and it had just taken over some uh, decades before from Babylon. Uh, its whole outlook was entirely different. They believed in one invisible creator, whereas the uh, Babylonians believed in a whole pantheon of idol gods. They had much greater affinity with the Jews. They believed in giving the deported peoples um, the right to go back to their own lands again and gave them a certain amount of home rule and complete religious freedom. Uh, the Persian rule was very enlightened in many ways. Uh, and um, uh, there's no doubt about it that it was under the sovereignty of God that a man like Cyrus and later Darius came to the throne of the Persian Empire. Now, with Darius I, um, a lot of internal trouble after the death of Cyrus, who was a most remarkable man, um, uh, came to an end. And in his second year, he finally squashed all rebellion. It was the biggest empire the world had ever known. It stretched from India right to Greece. Uh, it, it, he, he squashed in every Persian province all rebellion and established firmly Persian rule so that there was peace every, everywhere. Now the Jews had gone back in 536 under a royal decree of Cyrus. They had gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of God. Uh, when they got back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they had immediately started on clearing the temple site, and the first thing they did was to set up the altar and make offerings on it. Then, due to Samaritan opposition, and the Jews hated the Samaritans from that day onwards, because the Samaritans were the Jews that were left in the land when the rest were deported, and had intermarried with other peoples deported from elsewhere to Palestine. So to, their, to, to the Jew, they were an abomination, because they were mixed up with foreigners. Uh, and, of course, the Samaritans tried to help them, and you remember, they wouldn't have it, and uh, that began the great feud between the Samaritan and the Jew, which lasted over centuries. Now, due to Samaritan opposition and general difficulties, the work on the temple stopped for 16 years until the Lord raised up Haggai and Zechariah in 520 BC. When they began their ministry then, uh, due actually to Haggai's uh, first 
recorded message that we have in Haggai chapter 1, the work restarted with the obtaining of materials and the re-clearing of the temple site. Darius I reaffirmed the decree of Cyrus and the work went on in spite of very real temptations to despondency and depression on the part of the remnant who were building the temple. Now it was just at this point uh, before the actual building work began that Zechariah gave his first recorded message. He began his ministry just at that point, just before a month, I think it was, before the actual work of building began. We've got it in the first few verses of chapter 1. He began his ministry, which in fact was destined to go far beyond Haggai's. Although Haggai was his elder fellow worker. On the day the building work began to go up, Haggai brought two more messages which are again recorded in the last verses of chapter 2 of Haggai. And as far as the scriptures go, he, his ministry was concluded. He had no more to say. Now it is Zechariah who ministers to the workers. And this is where it's very helpful later when you come to read these chapters to know this. Now Zechariah takes over. No doubt Haggai stood silently by his side. And he begins to continually exhort them to go on to the completion of the work. Now, if you read through those first eight chapters, you'll find the whole burden of Zechariah's ministry to go on to the completion of the work. Don't stop. Go on to the completion. And the wonderful thing is that he, he doesn't keep on, as it were, um, beating them into doing it. Rather, he brings to them an amazing ministry of, in, of encouragement, uh, of hope and promise. All his ministry is taken up with these promises, the Lord will do it, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Zerubbabel, who laid the foundation, he shall also bring forth the top stone. All the way through, it was a ministry filled with encouragement and hope and promise. Now, you know, one cannot help but feel that just here we come to perhaps the key to Zechariah's ministry. Because he must have witnessed the utter depression and general despondency that had settled upon the remnant who were at work on the house. He must have watched it from his childhood. But now they were actually engaged in the building. He knew how easy it would be just for them all to collapse under the, the whole weight of conflict and, and opposition that there was. He, he noticed the feebleness, I'm sure, of their faith in the Lord, in this work of rebuilding. And I believe that he connected it, and this is where I want to underline before we finish this evening, he connected it all with their small and petty understanding of God's purpose. 
Now, in a sense, this is where, although we should be very careful, because one day we shall meet him, uh, we want to be careful what we say, but um, I must say, this is where Haggai failed. Because the Lord had kept him to this one note of building. He hadn't been able to go beyond that. You see, now Zechariah notices that it is because the people seem to have this small and petty idea of the purpose of God that they are so despondent, they are so depressed, they are so easily put off. Their, their faith is so feeble. Zechariah's ministry was therefore to reveal to them the far-reaching results of their obedience. To lift them up, as it were, to lift their sight onto an altogether different level. To, to show to them the greatness and the glory of God's Messiah, who was intimately connected with this building work in which they were engaged. His whole ministry was to cause them to realize that it was not just sacrifice, it wasn't just it wasn't just hardship. It wasn't just conflict and difficulty and problem for a mere building program. No. Uh, just connected with some house of God which anyway could never reach the magnificent proportions of Solomon's structure. No. He, want, he caused them to realize that it was all to do with the coming Messiah, to do with the, the Messiah's coming reign, his, his coming kingdom, his coming glory. So, you see, Zechariah's book is a marvelous book. It's filled with Christ. Filled with Christ. Filled with the glory of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the strength of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ. Everything is centered in Christ for Zechariah. And really he's saying to the people, look here, of course you're despondent. Of course you're feeble. Of course you're collapsing. Of course you're asking yourself, is it worth it? If it's just a little building program of bricks and mortar to do with time and place. But he says to them, look here, I've got something to tell you. Your obedience has become the gateway into the actual purpose of God. You're in something which is eternal. You're in something that's going to bring in the, the Messiah. You're in something that is connected with the glory and the greatness of God's Christ. Now all this has so much later for us when we come to say more about the meaning of the book of Zechariah. Some people's idea of the Christian life is so petty and small, of course it's not worth it. The world has far much more to offer than the Christian life with its suffering, its hardship, its conflict, its going against the current, its continual opposition. Why, the world has much more to offer if you look at things that are seen. But when you look at things that are unseen, you can endure seeing him who is invisible. When you see Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, when you understand that you and I are living stones, and that this building work is not just a question of time and locality, 
filled with suffering and sacrifice and conflict and hardship. No, but it's all to do with an eternal building, one day to be revealed in the heavens, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. Then you see it's all worth it. And that's the whole purpose of Zechariah's ministry. You see, his, his whole burden is that they might really see that all this is connected with the coming of the Christ. Well, we must finish. Finally, four years after, in 516, the temple was completed and dedicated amid scenes of indescribable joy. How marvelous it must have been for Zechariah to see the fulfillment of his own ministry. The top stones will be brought forth with shouts of grace. Christ, he saw it with his own eyes. In scenes of indescribable joy and thanksgiving, he saw the actual fulfillment of his own ministry. I believe he probably lived on to see the actual fulfillment of the of his ministry concerning Jerusalem as well, and saw the walls built before finally he laid down his life. Well, there are some verses I could give you, but we haven't time now. It's more than probable that Zechariah lived on into Ez to see Ezra's return in 458 BC and later on to see Nehemiah's return, the final and conclusive one in 445 BC. If he is the Zechariah of Nehemiah 12, 16, then the high priest was Joachim, the son of Joshua. Now, before you go, I must give you one further problem to tickle you. In Matthew 23:35, and you can compare this with Luke 11:51, the Lord Jesus himself refers to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And he says in these wonderful verses, and upon you, upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of Abel, the righteous, unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom he slew between the sanctuary and the altar. Now here again is an absolute first class problem. In 2 Chronicles 24 verse 20 and 21 we are told of a prophet Zechariah the son of Jehoiada who was martyred in the temple. He was however as I have said the son of Jehoiada not the son of Berechiah. We have no tradition whatsoever on record that the Zechariah of this book was martyred. Yet the Lord Jesus seems to suggest, if these are rightly recorded, that Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, died a martyr's death in the temple. He was slain between the altar and the sanctuary. Now this is very interesting because it simply means this. Abel was the first martyr, Zechariah would have been the last. For actually, not in point of ministry, but in point of time, Zechariah might have outlived Malachi. Certainly he was the last martyr, if it is true that he died a martyr's death. We have no record of it anywhere. That need not worry us. There are other things that we know that we have no other record of, which we take to be fact. On the other hand, if it is the Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, you must remember that the second book of Chronicles was the last book in the Jewish arrangement of the Old Testament. Therefore, Abel would have been the first martyr, and again, the last you read of would have been Abel, um, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Here again, we have a problem. Some people would like to say that some dozy scribe 
uh, dreaming away had somehow or other come to the Dekoriah instead of putting Son of Jehoiada would put down Son of Berakah. Here you have another problem. I leave it with you. All we do know is this, that as far as we can tell, he lived to an old age. If that is true, as it may well be, then he died a martyr's death. For how it happened, we don't know. But he laid down his life in his old age in the temple of the Lord, which he so adored. Well, there's much mystery still surrounding Zechariah. We've tried to uncover a little. We've tried to look in to find out what we can about this man, about his background, about the book that is called by him. We can say this. If he was responsible for Zechariah chapters 9 to 14, then sometime toward the end of his life, before he actually met his death, in whatever way he did meet it, Perhaps during the tremendous days when the walls were being built, the walls of Jerusalem were being built amidst great conflict and intrigue and opposition that we read of in the book of Nehemiah, he was given once again another insight into the future. And this time, once more, he saw the coming Messiah. But this time he saw it more fully than he'd even seen it before. It is one of the most remarkably distinct prophecies of the coming Christ, of his work, his rejection, his suffering, his reign, and his final glory in the Holy Scripture. Zechariah then is still, although we've got a little way this evening, mysterious. We can learn a lot from what we do know. We have to leave what we don't know with the Lord. Now I'm sorry if this evening has been very technical and very dry, but perhaps next week and the following weeks we can start now to look at the spiritual meaning of this book and much else. Now shall we pray.
is actual. Now, my birth, my natural birth, was an actual birth. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here tonight. It was actual. And spiritual birth is an actual thing. It happens. I remember when I came to the Lord in, 19, in November of 1943. It was actual. Actual. It happened. Oh, I don't say it's a question of feelings. It was a question of faith. But the point back is that, as I look back now, I know it happened. I, in fact, can't remember the day I was born. I'd like to, but I can't. The first time I can remember is when I was three years of age. But all I know is this, that I was born, because here I am. How do I know I'm a Christian? I know that in November the 27th, 1943, I gave myself to the Lord Jesus and the following night I publicly confessed him. Well, I'm not going to say that I had any great feelings or anything else, but this is the point. I'm here tonight, and spiritually I know something happened. I was born of God. And so with many of us, isn't it? That's how it happened. It's actual. But how? How can I be born again? Well, you see, first of all, how is it possible? Through the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved, not for God loved, but for God so loved, that he gave his only begotten son by the love of God, the love and the compassion of God. The Lord loves you. He loves you personally. Although he's infinite, he has the most remarkable knowledge of the finite. He loves you. But you see, it's not only by his love, it's by Christ's coming. For as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him may have eternal life. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you say, how is it possible for me to be born again? I tell you, Nicodemus, it's possible because God so loved. Secondly, because I will be lifted up on the cross. How can you and I be born again, sinful human beings? By Calvary. By the love of God, yes. Through Calvary. Through Calvary. No other way but through the blood of the Lamb. Through the broken body of How can I be born of God when I take a step of deliberate faith and believe? Listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, that includes everyone in this room, Whosoever believeth in him 
how is it possible to be born of God? When I believe that God loved this world so much that he gave his son, when I believe that Christ died on the cross for my sin, when I believe that Christ finished the work needed in my salvation so that there is no more left to do, when I in faith come and take Christ as my Lord and as my Savior, that moment I'm born of God's Spirit. To as many as received him, to them gave he authority to become children of God. Now what about you? Are you a Christian? Are you born again? Do you want to be? If you do, you've only got to come in a deliberate step of faith tonight, humbly, repentantly to the Lord. Shall we pray? <coughs>